You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, grab that and go with me to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28 together this morning. Matthew chapter 28. If you don't own a Bible, we're glad you're here today, and we would love to give you a Bible. No strings attached. On those tables in the back of the room, you'll find hardback Bibles. You can grab one now. You can grab one on your way out of worship today, and uh, just start reading that Bible and see what happens in your life. If you don't know your way around the Bible very well, the passage we're studying will appear on the screen so you can follow along with us without any trouble. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for His people, so listen carefully to these words, God's words, recorded for us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth... Has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This four-week series that we have been doing on Sunday mornings has been built around a single question, and that question is, what is an evangelical? What is an evangelical? It's an important question to ask, and now seems the right time to ask it for two reasons. First, because since 2020, we have had about 120 new people join us here at Faith Church. Since 2020, about 120 new people, and so it seems a good time to remind us all of some of the core beliefs, the core truths that we hold in common. These are things that we all share here at Faith Church. Now, the other reason I think the timing is right for this series is because in recent years, the word evangelical has become a political label. And it's not being used very much as a theological word, but as a political label. And this has caused much confusion and some debate. In fact, there are some people in Christian circles who say we should just toss the word out with the trash. We should stop using the word evangelical altogether because it's completely lost its original meaning. And it's hopeless to think that we can recover that original theological meaning. I'm not convinced that we should just toss the word out with the trash, though I agree that we must define the term carefully, and I think it's helpful to have a separate term we use to label the evangelical imposters, those who don't fit the basic theological definition. And in this this series, I've suggested the term evangelifish. And when you watch the news, whatever your preferred news source might be, and you hear the talking heads going on and on and on about evangelicals, you will more than likely need to insert the word evangelifish. Evangelifish. What they're really talking about is the evangelifish. Because here's the thing about evangelifish. They have no doctrinal solidity. They don't know what they believe. 
They have no missional spine. They're not on a gospel-centered mission in this world. They're just this political, pulpy mass, abundant and afloat. So how do we distinguish evangelicals from the abundant evangelic fish that are out there? Well, that's what this series has been about. We have defined evangelicals. Our core theological definition has four parts to it. We've said evangelicals are Bible people, gospel people, born-again people, and Great Commission people. So true evangelicals believe that the God who created all things has revealed himself and his plan for his world, and he has revealed all of that in the Bible. We are Bible people. And the Bible is the story about people, you and me, who are in need. We are rebels in need of redemption, sinners in need of salvation, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in his life, death, and resurrection, accomplishes our salvation. But everything that Jesus has accomplished for us, it's not applied to us until we look with faith to him. So evangelicals are gospel people. How is it that we are able to look with faith to Jesus? Well, it happens when the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts, giving us the desire and the ability to respond positively to the gospel. This inner transformation that comes from above, it doesn't wear off. It doesn't wear off, and it shows up. It shows up in a whole new way of living. We are born-again people. And then today, in the final week of this series, we will see that evangelicals are great commission people, meaning that we are on a mission to take this good news of new life in Jesus, to take this good news to everyone, everywhere. Everyone, everywhere. That's the mission. We're looking this morning, we're taking a deeper dive into the passage that we read together at the conclusion of our worship gathering every single week. It's called the Great Commission. Now we have similar texts in all of the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Similar texts that we could think of as Great Commission texts or scriptures. But this one at the end of Matthew's Gospel has become the most well-known. Think of it like this. Here, Jesus gives us, the church, our marching orders. Our marching orders. This past week, uh, Jamie's parents came in town to visit and met us over in Orlando for a little staycation. I was there for just a couple of days. I had some meetings in Orlando and then back into town. But they stayed throughout the week. And one night, we were going to all go to dinner together. So we did some research online. We were staying in an Airbnb that was in an area we weren't terribly familiar with. Did a little research. Found a place called the Pub Orlando. I don't know if anybody's ever been there. The Pub Orlando. Had really good reviews. It's like an English-themed pub. I'm a sucker for that sort of thing. So I was like, let's try out the Pub Orlando. So we go, and we're expecting the wait to be long. It's the summer. It's Orlando, right? We kind of know what we're getting ourselves into. Well, we get there. Nice area. Highly themed restaurant. Looks great. Crowds and crowds of people are around. So we stand in line to meet with the host. And finally, I get up to the host, and I tell him how many are in our party. And he says to me, I'm sorry, sir, our kitchen is broken. Well, I, just, I thought it was a joke, right? I mean, who's ever heard of such a thing? 
So I just said, well, we've got five in our party. We'll take first available seating. You know, no big deal. Can we just go over to the bar for a while? And again, he says, sir, I'm, I'm sorry. Our kitchen is broken. He was serious. And as, as politely as I could, I said, your kitchen, like, like the whole thing, is broken? How, how does that happen? Did a dinosaur get loose back there? Or like, what's going on in this place? Can we at least go to the bar, get a drink, wait it out? How long do you think it might be? And he said, well, we don't really have any idea how long this is going to take. It's never happened to us. I can offer you some water while you wait. Well, of course, needless to say, we passed on the water, made our way to another place to eat. Now, shift with me into the point of the story here. The pub Orlando had a lot of great things going for it. Ideal location. Highly themed place. Crowds and crowds of people around, plenty of seating. But look, if you're a restaurant, it doesn't matter what else you get right if you get this one thing wrong. I'm sorry, sir, our kitchen is broken. It doesn't matter what else you get right. Because that's your reason for being. The reason you exist is to serve food. In this passage we're studying today, Jesus, the risen Jesus, tells us our reason for being. We exist to make disciples. It doesn't matter what else a church gets right if it gets this one thing wrong. Sorry, sir. Kitchen is broken. So, let's look at this passage known as the Great Commission. It comes in the context of a great cover-up. And it comes with the promise of a great companion. Let's start first with this great cover-up. Back up to verse 11 with me. While the women were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to these soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they, the guards, they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, here's how Matthew 18 begins. It begins with the risen Jesus. Two women, both named Mary, they go to the tomb early on Easter morning. And as they approach the tomb, the earth begins to quake. And a Thor-like figure drops down from the heaven. He looks like lightning, and he's strong enough to move the stone out of the way that was there at the tomb. This is an angel, and the angel says to the Marys, he's not here. Jesus is alive. He is risen. Go and tell his disciples. See, from start to finish, Matthew 28 is a battle of tellings. A battle of tellings. Who will tell what? And to whom will they tell it? Who will tell what? And to whom will they tell it? The angel says, Jesus is alive. Go and tell his disciples. Now, as this angel appears, the guards who were there 
near the tomb, they faint. They just pass out. They can't handle it. So they're stone cold. They're asleep. The two Marys start to go off to find the disciples. And as they do, Jesus appears to them. And so now they know he really is alive. They see him with their own eyes. And Jesus reiterates the words from the angel. Go and tell my brothers. Go and tell them. So off the Marys go. A little while later, those guards, remember the ones who passed out? Well, now they're awake. And they go off, and they find these priests, the chief priests. And they report as best they can to the chief priests what happened. They talk about the earthquake. They talk about this lightning-like figure who came out of nowhere. The priests, they gather together a group of people for a, a secret council meeting. They have just one agenda point to cover the whole thing up to cover up what happened it was the same sort of council meeting that led to the crucifixion of Jesus and now the council meets again to cover up the resurrection of Jesus so they say to the guards we want you to lie we want you to make up a story we want you to tell people that the disciples came in the night and stole the body of Jesus while you were asleep. Now think about that for a minute. It's a lie, and it's not even a good one. If they were asleep, how could they know it was the disciples who stole the body? It's not even a good lie. But they go along with it. Now they're concerned about this lie because in these times, if you were a soldier and you fell asleep on the job, it was punishable by death. And so that's why the council members have to give them this promise. If this comes to the governor's ears, don't worry, we got your back. We'll keep you out of trouble. And by the way, here's a large sum of money. We're going to give you this, and in return, you go and you tell this lie. And Matthew says, this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The great cover-up. Now think with me for a second. Why would Matthew think it's so important to include this detail in his gospel. Why not just jump from the scene of Jesus' resurrection to the commissioning scene where Jesus gives us our mission? Why this detail in the middle? Why does he include it? Probably because he wants us to understand that in every part of the church's story, there will be opponents there will be an incessant evil at work. At every point of the church's story, there will be people who want to cover up the truth, who want to censor and slander the Christian message. So you see, when we hear in our day about things like Amazon banning a book because it presents the biblical view of gender or marriage or whatever the case, when we hear about that sort of thing, when we hear about social media platforms censoring the Christian message, we shouldn't be surprised. This is nothing new. This sort of censorship of covering up the truth has been going on since the first century. But here's what this passage of Scripture will teach us. Evil is incessant, 
but the truth will win out. Truth will triumph. Come with me and I'll show you why I say that as we continue looking at this story. So we have the great cover-up and in this context we receive the great commission, the marching orders of the church. The eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we have this battle of tellings going on. The guards are going out, spreading their lies. The Marys go and they find the disciples. The disciples come to this mountain where Jesus had directed them. It's interesting, in the biblical narrative, mountains are the places where the most important instruction is given. From Sinai to the Sermon on the Mount to the mountain here where Jesus gives us the Great Commission. Jesus comes to his disciples and he gives them a command. And there's only one command, one imperative in this passage. The main verb, the main call to action for us is make disciples. We have three participles used here that are showing us, fleshing this out. What does it mean to make disciples? But the main call to action for you and for me is make disciples. So to understand what that means, we've got to understand the noun disciple, right? What is a disciple? A disciple is someone who has responded to Jesus' call, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Those are the words he spoke to his first disciples back at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. He goes to two brothers, fishermen, and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now Jesus breaks all the customs of the day when he does this. See, at this time in history, the way it worked with every teacher-student relationship was it was a student-initiated process. A student found a master with whom he wanted to study. And he would walk with that master for a while and memorize all of the master's teaching until finally he had proved himself a worthy disciple. And then the master would agree that he could really follow him and study under him even more. Jesus breaks that whole pattern. Jesus initiates... He goes to these fishermen and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Come with me. Learn from me. Be on mission with me. This is what it means to be a disciple. Stated simply, a disciple is a lifelong learner and follower of Jesus. A lifelong learner and follower of Jesus. A disciple is an apprentice, a practitioner, someone who goes with Jesus with an attitude of observation, I want to see what he's doing, and imitation. I want to be like him. I want to be like him. We look to Jesus, we learn from Jesus, we live like Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus calls us just as he called those fishermen. He says, become a disciple so that you can go and make disciples. And what does that involve? Well, it involves going. Go, therefore, 
and make disciples. Now remember, there's only one main verb here, only one imperative. It's make disciples. This go, it's not go in the sense of thou shalt go on a mission trip. The force of this word is as you go, wherever you go, make disciples. As you go to school, make disciples. As you go to the gym, make disciples. As you go to work, make disciples. Wherever you go, this is the mission. Making disciples also involves baptizing, just as we baptized those girls this morning. According to Jesus, you cannot be a disciple without being baptized, as he defines the word disciple here in this passage. When a person is baptized, they are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or more precisely, they're baptized into the name. Into the name of the triune God. Meaning, into fellowship with the triune God, the creator of the universe. Marked as someone who belongs to Jesus. And then... Making disciples involves teaching. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, if if a disciple is a lifelong learner and follower of Jesus, then the disciple must be introduced to the teaching of the Master. We are learners. Now, there's there's what it means. Now, let's talk application. And let's talk application on the communal level, meaning the whole church, and on the personal level. Me, you. Start communal. This passage, the Great Commission, is why we at Faith Church care so much, put so much time and energy and so many of our resources into the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. This passage is why. Because you can't have disciples, you can't make disciples without the proclamation of God's Word. I know there are many, many other things we could be doing, I could be doing. And maybe there are times when you wish there were other things I was doing. But the reason that we devote so much of our energy to this is the passage right here we're studying. To make disciples of all nations, it means that we must teach the gospel, the scriptures, to everyone everywhere. This passage is also the reason that we as a church care so much about church planting. Think about it for a second. If making disciples requires baptizing and teaching, where do those activities take place? In local churches. Where are people baptized? In local churches. Where does teaching and preaching like this happen? In local churches. If we're going to make disciples of all nations, we must plant churches in all nations. Everywhere, among all types of people. So that's the communal level. Now let's get personal with it. I want to ask you two questions, just two. First question is this. Are you developing as a follower of Jesus? Are you developing as a follower of Jesus? And here's some ways you can know. Do you have healthy rhythms in your life? Rhythms of study and prayer? 
Are you utilizing the digital resources that we provide you with? The midweek podcast, the prayer page on Facebook, things like that? Are you committed to at least one connection group? And committed doesn't mean you sign up and then you show up once or twice in the semester. Are you committed to corporate worship? This every week opportunity for the Spirit of God to work in us, for the Word of God to work in us? Are you committed to these things? Are you developing as a follower of Jesus? That's the first question. Now here's the second one. Are you helping someone or some group follow Jesus? Are you helping someone or some group follow Jesus? Because that's what it means to be a disciple who is making disciples. See, it's not as complicated as we often think it is. To make disciples, you don't need a PhD in theology. You don't need 40 years' experience of following Jesus. You only need to be one step ahead of someone to show them the right way to go. So do you have someone in your life or a group of people in your life that you can say, I am helping these folks follow Jesus? That's what it means to make disciples. Now, one final part of this passage I want us to see. The Great Commission that comes in the context of this great cover-up. The lies are being spread, so we must remain committed to the truth. But this Great Commission also comes with a promise of a great companion. We're not alone in this. Notice that the command, make disciples, is sandwiched between verses 18 and 20. And see for yourself what we find in these verses. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then in verse 20, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, if you have great distance to cover, and we do, all nations, and if there is a great evil at work spreading lies, and there is, then on this mission we need a great companion. And we have one. We have one. Jesus gives us a declaration of his power, all authority. He is the all-powerful one. We see this throughout the Gospels. As Jesus heals the sick, as he shows his power over the forces of darkness, even the forces of nature bow before him. And now, in Matthew 28, he has shown his power supremely by conquering death. If Jesus can conquer death, then what can stand in his way? What can stand in the way of his good plan? Truth will triumph. Jesus shows us his power and then he gives us this promise of his presence. Now every great story, every great story has a hero. It's a key element of the good story, right? But here's the thing about heroes. Usually the hero in the story is either powerful or present. Rarely is the hero both. So consider the Lord of the Rings trilogy. 
If you know the stories well, you know the true hero of the story is not Frodo, not the one who actually carries the ring to Mordor. No, it's Samwise Gamgee. Sam is the true hero of the story. And here's the thing about Sam. He's always present. He's always with Frodo. But he's not a very powerful sort. In fact, he's remarkably ordinary. Now consider the final installment in the Avengers movies. One of my all-time favorites. Captain Marvel is powerful enough that she can take down the enemy warship just by flying through it. What power? But here's the thing about Captain Marvel. She's not always present. There are lots of other planets that need her. Jesus is the hero who is both powerful and present. Present with you. Present with you now, believer. And whatever that struggle is that you're facing, present with you now. And he always will be. So what are we waiting for? This mission, make disciples of all nations, what are we waiting for? If Jesus has all power, if the risen Lord is with us, then it's time to take the next step in your journey of discipleship, whatever that step might be. If you're a believer and you haven't yet been baptized, you should be baptized. If you're a believer but you haven't yet developed rhythms like Bible study and and prayer that will help you develop as a follower of Jesus, it's time to develop those rhythms. If you're someone who looks around your life and you don't really see anyone or any group that you're helping to follow Jesus, you're not really making disciples of anyone, then it's time to start. Start with the people who are right in front of you. Start at home. Men, you should lead in this. Stop being a spiritual eunuch. You should lead in this. See, here's the thing. Everybody wants to talk about changing the world. Nobody wants to do the dishes. Start with what's right in front of you. Start with the people who are right in front of you. Make disciples where God has sovereignly stationed you. You've heard me quote before a man named Dallas Willard. He was an American philosopher, and he was known for his writings on discipleship. One of his books is called The Great Omission. The Great Omission. And in this book, Willard warns us about what he calls vampire Christianity. You've heard me use the term before. Vampire Christianity, in effect, says to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, Jesus, please and thank you, but I don't care to be your student or to have your character, your blood. That's all I need. I'd like you to save me, but I don't want to follow you. Willard goes on to say the greatest issue, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who profess to be Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ. The greatest need. The risen Lord of the universe is with you. So what are you waiting for? Take the next step in your discipleship journey. You know what it is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your life, your death, and your resurrection. 
by your resurrection, you show us that you are indeed all-powerful. If you can conquer death, then nothing can stand in your way. Nothing can stand in the way of your good plan for this world. Truth will triumph. We ask for your help. Empower us with your spirit so that we can be faithful to this mission that you've called us to, this mission of making disciples of all nations. Help us to see and to start with the people who are right in front of us. Family, friends, co-workers, neighbors. Help us to develop the rhythms that we need so that we will grow as your followers. And then give us opportunities to invest in others. Teaching, modeling the gospel, showing your love, Jesus. It's so very easy for us to become distracted. It's so very easy for us as a church to become like, well, like the pub Orlando. It doesn't matter what else we get right if we get this one thing wrong. So help us to be faithful, to make disciples of all nations. In Jesus' name. Amen.